North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, all of you lovely people. You are listening to Dr. Low Radio. You know me. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, naturopathic doctor. Thanks for listening and your continued support. I am on a high right now. I just got back from Boston. I was out there for the second annual Ancestral Health Symposium. It's a conference for health professionals and the public, and it highlights the primal diet and primal lifestyle. So I got to hang out with a lot of my really great friends, Rob Wolf, Mark Sisson, Chris Kresser, uh, Diane Sanfilippo from Balanced Bites. Got to see uh, Chris Masterjohn, hang out with Jimmy Moore from Live and La Vida Low Carb, and a lot of other really great people in the blogosphere and, you know, the podcasters. So it was it was a major love fest. It was a major knowledge fest. It was a really great time. If any of you are into the paleo living, you have to go next year. And they haven't selected the location yet, but it will definitely be one to check out. And also in the next few months, Paleo FX will be around in Austin, so keep an eye out for that. Um, if you're local in the San Diego area, I'm going to be giving a paleo lecture tomorrow night. So that's Wednesday, August 15th. It's free and it's catered, so you can come hungry. Um, it will be at the Daily Method. That's a local um, bar method gym in Carlsbad, and it's at the Forum. There will be a workout class at 545 and then a lecture to follow at 7. So for more information, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Noel or facebook.com slash bloomnaturalhealth. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Lauren Noel. And, of course, you can also call in to the show, 818-495-6919. Tonight's topic is very relevant to all of us. Bacterial resistance is occurring at an astounding rate. You can probably turn to any newspaper or look at any news website and see stories of numerous deaths due to bacterial superbugs. And really what was seen as a miracle drug at one point, antibiotics are now limited in their ability to do their job. And millions of people are contracting resistant infections every year in the U.S., and hundreds of millions more are doing so around the globe. The strength and resistance in the bacteria are getting stronger, and more and more patients are dying from formerly treatable diseases. And really, where are these superbugs coming from? You know, where are they found? They're in places where there's ill, where there's young people, where there's old people, such as homeless shelters, inner cities, prisons, childcare centers. And really, the most dangerous place of all is where you're supposed to go to get well in your average hospital. So it's really a problem. And we're interviewing a guest tonight who is an expert in this area. He's going to shed some light on a solution to this problem, and a way that we can shift our thinking and kind of see a solution from a natural medicine perspective. So joining me tonight is Stephen Harold Buner. He is author of Herbal Antibiotics, Natural Alternatives for Treating Drug-Resistant Bacteria. And just a little background, I'm super excited to have this guest on the show. I was um, in naturopathic school when I first heard about him. I had a fellow classmate who was really majorly geeking out on, his, on all of his books. He was telling me about, you know, um, these plant medicine books that he has where he just sees plants in a very different way, in a very really appreciative, loving way, and also really knowing, like, the, the, the scientific part of the plants, too. So it's, it's a nice balance. Um, I really recommend you guys check out some of his other books. 
So Stephen Harold Buner is the award-winning author of 18 books of nonfiction and also one of poetry. For the past 30 years, he's taught throughout the U.S., throughout Canada, and Europe on plant medicine and earth relationship. He's done writing and also research in different areas. He's also been involved in herbal beers, which I love that about him. Um, and, you know, he's really one of the foremost writers in the nature of emerging infections and ecosystem disruption. He's been called one of the plant geniuses of our time by Rosemary Gladstar. So that is really an honor. To learn more about him, you can check him out. Um, and we'll get his website from him when he gets here on the air. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the show, and welcome to Dr. Lowe Radio. Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Now, what's the website where people can learn more about you? Because I didn't have that written down here. Oh, it's GaianStudies.org. So that's G-A-I-A-N Studies. .org. Awesome. Thank you. Well, first off, let's just kind of backtrack a little bit. Tell us a little about you and, and how you got to be involved in plant medicine and, and all these things you've been writing about. Well, really, the biggest influence on my life was my great-grandfather, who um, trained as a botanical physician, using well, using mostly botanical medicines. In the early 1900s, he began his practice in 1911, and uh, he died Oh, in 67 or so, and we were extremely close for a long time, and I used to spend a lot of time with him. So he had sort of a 19th, early 20th century perspective on medicine and healing, and that's really the kind of person I wanted to be, the whole sort of technological, I've got five minutes to see uh, what's your insurance, is just not the kind of orientation that I ever responded to and and that sort of stayed with me most of my life and then I was really taken with wilderness I spent a lot of time with him there and I got involved in the um, humanistic healing and growth movements back in the late 60s and have been ever since so that's sort of what started the whole journey and it's been a pretty interesting one I must say yeah, your 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 book is it's really fascinating because I think a lot of times, you know, we think of well at least not me and you, but a lot of times people will think of herbs as oh you just kind of dabble some herbs here and there. Maybe if you're feeling a little under the weather, you can take some herbs for maybe a cold or flu. But herbs and plant medicine are very powerful in their ability to uh, deliver a particular response. And you know, and even for something as severe as these majorly you know drug resistant and superbugs. Can you tell us a little bit about this and, and really why this is so important? Well, the thing is that most people on Earth use plants as their medicine, and human beings have since human beings have been, and virtually the only country on Earth that is as prejudiced against plants as we are is us. And the thing is that the Americans are taught a lot of beliefs about medicine and science and all of that, but when it really comes down to it, what we really have is a, is a deeply held prejudice that we've been taught. And what's fascinating is that as resistance becomes more common and things like septic shock that happen with a number of emerging diseases become more common, all around the world except for here, the research on plants is just, taking off like you wouldn't believe, and they're finding that these very resistant diseases and septic shock conditions and things like that, they respond extremely well to plants. And part of the reason is that plants are extremely complex chemically, 
They can be just as potent as antibacterials if you know what you're doing and you use them properly. And um, bacteria just don't develop resistance to them. So, and probably a, one other really important thing about it is that pharmaceutical antibiotics are not biodegradable. Most people don't know that. And the millions of tons of them that are made that go into the ecosystem continue to disrupt life forms forever. But plants are both renewable and they're biodegradable. So all the way around, it's a much better approach if we then would just save antibiotics for certain conditions that are extremely serious, we'd be a lot better off, but we don't. We use them for pretty much everything. So hospitals, when they're using antibiotics, which are using millions of pounds per year, the, the, when they break down, they don't, they don't go away is what you're saying. They stay in the ecosystem. No, they don't forever. go away. They have to be um, exposed to high heat or ultraviolet light to break down, but most of them that are taken by people, we excrete them and they go into the toilet and then they go into the water supply and they aren't broken down when they go through the sewage treatment plant system. So they go into the streams and the waterways along with every other pharmaceutical that people take. And those pharmaceuticals, they're biologically active. We're very, we're just exactly like every other living organism on the planet and those things are highly biologically active and so all of the bacteria around the world are constantly exposed to this low level degree of antibiotics and as well as in the hospital or in uh, agribusiness they're exposed to really large quantities of them and they begin developing resistance to it in order to survive and so what we end up with is a hugely escalating resistance problem. So people are even being exposed to this in their in their water system coming into their house? Is that a possibility? Oh, yeah. One of the fascinating things is I did a book in, I think it was 2000, uh, called The Lost Language of Plants, and I looked at the impact of pharmaceuticals in the environment. And all of the waterways in the industrialized world and all of the water systems are contaminated with hundreds of different um, pharmaceuticals. So we're actually being exposed to this tremendously strange biological experiment where we're constantly exposed to these tiny doses of these drugs. And what the kind of the researchers that began looking at it started to find that these tiny doses of parts per trillion or parts per million or parts per billion, they actually were more biologically active at that dosage range than they were at much larger doses, and they began affecting biological organisms in ways that were completely unexpected. So we're since World War II and the incredible generation of different pharmaceuticals in the millions of tons, the entire world's being bathed in this stuff, and nobody really knows what the ultimate outcome is going to be, but one of them is the development of resistant bacteria, which is, uh, is, is proving to be just an absolutely tremendous problem. I think this water thing is really interesting, and to be honest, I don't think I've ever known this before reading this in your book. I mean, I've heard about hormones in the water. I've known that for, you know, women who take birth control pills or hormone replacement gets into the water, and, and that's what we're exposed to, but I never really thought about antibiotics in our water system. Do you know of any way to actually filter that out 
I, I actually don't. The you know the the problem is that these things are there in very tiny doses, and even people that have wells and stuff, the underground aquifers are many times being affected by it. So we're all pretty much exposed to the environmental disruptions that have been occurring since we industrialized at this scale. Mm -hmm. The thing that I try to do is to have as healthy of a diet as possible. I mean, you mentioned about the paleo diet before. One of the things that happens with more ancient diets is that there's a tremendous range of plants that are normally eaten in that kind of a, a diet. And even my great-grandparents, I remember, they would harvest dandelion every year and nettles. And that was just part of the wild food dynamic that they grew up with. So yeah. those wild plant populations, when we consume them in some way or some form, whether it's herbal medicines or as food, they make a tremendous difference in the way our body tends to respond to exterior stressors. And pharmaceuticals in the water really are a unique kind of stressor. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Especially important to really take care of yourself even more so nowadays. Um, so let's kind of get into, you, you mentioned that, that that plant medicine, that herbal antibiotics, they bacteria cannot form a resistance against them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I find that really fascinating. I don't think many people really think of that. Well, the the first most important thing to understand, you, really what we're dealing with is is a problematical paradigm. And the we're living with, in the midst of, and the results of a late 19th century paradigm about the nature of the world. And one fundamental part of that is that everything is stupid except for us. And that's extremely difficult to get away from. It's still taught in all of the schools. All of the people are raised to pretty much believe that. The problem is it's not accurate. Now, newer generations of people are starting to challenge that, but the thing that has happened is one of the major reasons that's shifting is because of bacterial resistance. Bacteria are extremely intelligent, and so a pharmaceutical is only a single chemical, okay? So when a pharmaceutical touches a bacteria or a bacteria are exposed to it, the bacteria immediately begin generating responses to that pharmaceutical. And the thing is, most of our pharmaceuticals were created from studies on fungi, our plants, certain plant chemicals. So the bacteria have experienced varieties of these. They've been around for three and a half billion years, and they've They've got a lot of time under their belt about how to deal with bacterial substances or antibacterial substances. So the thing is they begin generating responses to that single antibiotic chemical that they encounter, whereas a plant like yarrow has many, many, many hundreds of chemicals in it. They're very, very complicated. To give you an idea of how sophisticated plants are about this, Plants like golden seal, for instance, contain a really strong antibacterial substance called berberine. Now, berberine will kill many of the resistant bacteria, but what's even more fascinating is that the plant itself contains another chemical that only does one thing, and what it does is it deactivates the bacterial resistant mechanism that allows the bacteria to evade an antibiotic. So not only does the berberine 
kill it, but the other one makes the bacteria weaker so that it's killed more easily. And there's still other ones that do other things. It's a very synergistic thing. So it's very, very hard for bacterial organisms to create a resistance to plants because plants have been spending the last four or five hundred million years figuring out how to respond to bacterial infections. So it's very, very elegant. That's really cool. It's really cocky of us to think that we can outsmart that, that we can actually do better than that. It is. We've only been around, I mean, depending upon how you think about it, you know, they say modern humans have been around, oh, 100,000 years, or some people say 30. I can never keep track of of how long we've been around, but they say maybe our <laughs> earliest ancestors were around a million years ago, and, and sort of our, you know, most close ancestors were 100,000 years ago, and then we begin to develop sort of more sophisticated cultures 30,000 years ago, and then 10,000 years ago cities. You know, you have to realize these bacteria have been around three and a half billion years. They, for us to think we understand things better than they do, it's it's just tremendously foolish. Yeah, I will say so. You know, I know that that a lot of my listeners are familiar with the effects of antibiotics on the gut flora. I think we've talked about it to great lengths. Do herbal antibiotics kill the good flora in the gut? They don't really seem to. In all of the years that I've worked with herbal antibiotics, they don't seem to have the same kind of negative impacts on the gut flora. I haven't studied why or figured out why, but in all of the thousands of people I've worked with over the last 25 years or so, I haven't had anybody complain about the GI flora upset like they do with antibiotics. It just doesn't seem to happen. That's that's so cool. Because that's really, I mean, that's the, one of the biggest side effects that I see with patients coming to see me. They say, I've been on antibiotics over and over and over again. I keep getting the same infections. I can't kick this sinus infection or I can't, you know, get rid of this infection in my lungs. And, you know, and it's just like, and they tend to have so many digestive issues after that point, too, and chronic yeast infections. And it's like it's always teeter-tottering back and forth. It's like they're fighting the bacteria with the antibiotic, and then they get a yeast infection, and then they get the bacteria back. And it's like, you know, it's just it's crazy. And not until we actually know have to restore the gut flora does it stay gone. Yeah, and that's and it's strange because, I mean, most doctors do know it has that impact, but very few physicians know things that they can use, like PB-8 is a good one I recommend to people to help restore the gut flora. I mean, the, the difficult thing for me is, see, my great-grandfather that I was close to, and then I had a great-uncle who was Surgeon General of the United States, and a grandfather who was president of the Kentucky Medical Association, who did the first open-heart surgery in Kentucky, and all of these different physicians in my family, but what it's turned out over time is that the model that's been being used for healthcare that everybody has come to accept as sort of the only model, it just isn't very good. And in a real limited area in terms of trauma medicine, there's nobody better. In terms of certain disease conditions, they're extremely good. But really when it comes down to it, taking chemicals the way that we do, it has very severe effects on the human body, and it often causes much worse problems than uh, than the disease that people are going to be treated for. So I think we're really getting to the point of crisis where our whole paradigm of healing has just got to shift. Yeah, for sure. All right, I'm going to go take it to the phone lines here. We've had a caller who's been very patient. So the caller from the 559, you are calling Dr. Low Radio. Where are you calling from, and what's your name? 
Uh, hi, I'm calling from Fresno, California. My name is Francisco. Hey, Francisco. Thanks for calling. What's your question? No, thank you. Uh, yes, I have a question. I've uh, currently uh, implemented the paleo diet, very strict. Um, I'm cutting out sugar, dairy. And I have a toenail infection, and I was wondering if there's anything that I could do to um, like improve my, my flora and my gut or anything to get rid of that yeast, to get rid of that toenail infection. Well, is it so you're pretty sure it's a yeast infection in your toe that you've got? Um, well, for, from what I've read, I've read a book on, on fungus, and it's it's a yeast, right? Uh-huh. And that's why I have to stop eating grains and sugar to stop feeding the yeast, correct? I'm I actually my orientation I'm kind of an omnivore so oh. the diet thing I'm I'm less activated about that sort of a dynamic okay but so. the the thing is there's a number of of really good systemic herbs that that are particularly good for that sort of thing and and one of the ones that I use a lot is uh, um, cryptolepis it's a particularly Crypt- nice it's called cryptolepis. There's there's really three that are particularly good for fungal infections that you can use as a systemic. And one's cryptolepis, and another one is alcornia, and the third one is aceta acuta. And those particular herbs are they're very potent in that they're broadly circulated in the body via the bloodstream to every part of the body. And those are the ones I typically use for systemic resistant staph infections, for instance. And um, they're pretty good at stuff like that. And I found toenail infections to be somewhat difficult to treat, so I usually try to work with a systemic as well as um, topical application as well. Okay. So I will look at that. You said it was... Which alcornia was that? Because I'm looking up a few. There's a few different types of alcornia. Alcornia cordifolia, I believe, is the the primary one okay. that I particularly like, and it's uh, it's an African plant that uh, I'm hoping to get more people to start bringing into the country because it's used over there really extensively. But it's um, there's a really great um, herbal company in Upper New York State called Woodland Essence, and they carry all of these. Okay, well, awesome. great. Thank Francisco. you so much. Any, you have a follow-up question, or you good? Um, no, that is all. I will look at those, and hopefully it'll it'll help. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Uh-huh. All right. I'm going to take it here to the next caller. So this is a caller from, or actually, caller from 613. If you want to ask a question, go and press 1, and I'll bring you on the air. Um, and then also, Francisco, I'm going to put the uh, name of those herbs on the Facebook page. So if you want to check that, I will put that on there. It's facebook.com slash Noel, and I'd be happy to do that. Um, Stephen, what, is, what are some different ways to use herbs in general? You know, we haven't really talked a lot about herbal medicine on the show, so just to kind of, you know, give sort of a general view of all the different ways that you can use herbs. Well, there's probably 30 or 40 different kinds of formulations that can be used. The, traditionally, if you get it just down at the most simple Way the three most basic forms that have been used around the world are as water extracts, either as an infusion, which is a strong tea, or a decoction, which is a boiled, concentrated water extract. Are people just eat the herbs? Are people apply them topically? And there have been for 
quite a few centuries, people have used, been using varieties of alcohol tinctures as well, which would be the fourth primary type. And most of those, they were a lot more sophisticated about herbal tinctures now, but they've been being used for at least three or four hundred years that I know of, if not quite a bit longer than that. So I prefer with systemic infections like this either to use a tincture because you can get a lot of herb in the body fairly fast that way are using a decoction along with that sometimes. For instance, for cholera, which is a resistant bacteria that's causing a lot of problem now, um, if you do like a berberine plant, which is extremely good for that, like golden seal, and then you do a decoction, a concentrated decoction of geranium, those two will pretty much knock it out every time. Wow. So it's just those kind of combinations. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I've seen because I see a lot of people now that in the community that develop resistant infections, like multiple resistant staff is probably the most common one. And those people go through multiple courses of antibiotics, and they just the the infection just doesn't go away. So I began using cryptolepis tincture between one teaspoon and one tablespoon four to six times a day, oh, gee, about 10 or 12 years ago, something like that. And I haven't had it fail yet, so I hope it never does. But it's it's very strong, very effective, and there's no side effects that I've heard of from that use yet. So, And people are losing their life from this. People in the hospital are losing their life from, from drug-resistant staph infections. And, and to think that there's an herbal treatment that you have not seen fail once, it's crazy. Yeah, and see, I found out about it because of all of the work they've been doing in Africa. They, the a lot of the other countries on the earth, they've gotten tired of being leveraged by pharmaceutical companies, and they're like in Africa, for instance. Researchers there are very focused on finding what is the most effective herb, not whether herbs work, which is where we're sort of stuck. <laughs> they find the most effective one, then they find the most effective form of it then they find the best way to grow it, and then they go around to the villages and take seeds so the people grow the herb that they need right there, which is really how it should be that people should be more involved in their own health care because they know there's no way that they're going to be able to deal with what's happening using a pharmaceutical model. So, yeah, these these herbs are extremely effective. They're, the research of which I have several thousand journal articles supporting all of this just so people here will kind of know it's not sort of made-up stuff. The research is extremely good. But one of the um, bacterial resistance researchers I read in some depth made this remark. He said, if you see an obituary in the paper and they say died of complications due to surgery, 99% of the time it means they got a resistant infection in the hospital and that's what they died from. So, yeah, the problem is way more widespread, and the cure, the response, is a lot more reliable and easy than most people suspect. Yeah, and it's so common that that's a, a cause listed, is that they died from complications, you know? Yeah, they, they rarely say they died from a resistant infection they picked up in the hospital because that yeah. upsets people. <laughs> yeah. Very rarely would they keep it real like that. Um, I feel so lucky to have you on the air that I can just rattle off, like, a few different conditions. You could tell me your favorite herbs. Are you down for that? <laughs> sure. Okay. So what about 
Um, let's see, what about strep throat? I know that's something a lot of patients think they have to do antibiotics for. Now, strep throat's a really interesting one. I began treating that oh, oh, quite a long time ago, maybe 20 years, and I began using Echinacea angustifolia. Now, purpurea is useful, useless for this, okay? Purpurea, the way it's done, you'd made in America is not a very good herbal medicine, no, but angustifolia or any of the other Echinacea varieties are very good. And so what you do is you get an Echinacea angustifolia tincture and you take a quarter to a half a teaspoon of the tincture every hour. And what you do is you put it in your mouth and it will stimulate saliva production quite strongly and your tongue will tingle. And what you do is you let that dribble quite slowly over the back of the throat. And I've never had it fail. The, um, the most interesting case was I had a friend who was a physician and I had mentioned this to him and he he woke up one morning with a really sore throat that he thought was probably staph, or I mean, sorry, a strep throat infection. So he went and got tested, and then he remembered me talking about this. He began using angustifolia, and when he woke up the next morning, he was fine, just in time to get the hospital call that said, yeah, you've got strep throat, you need to come <laughs> in for antibiotics. So it's it's very, very reliable for that. But and, and echinacea, I had strep Sorry, go ahead. No, go. For echinacea and gustafolia to work, you have to use the tincture, and it has to make contact with the infected area. That's the only way it's going to really work. So. And then you swallow it down, right? You don't have to spit it out. Yes, you do. You swallow it down. Okay. Um, when I was younger, I was just going to say that I used to get strep throat all the time, like once a month, even twice a month. For a long time, I was on tons of antibiotics. Eventually, I had to get my tonsils taken out, which is just crazy and totally avoid completely avoidable if I had gone this route. And and I would still get strep throat even after the surgery, but once I started using herbal medicine, I never got it. Once I restored the gut floor, I haven't had strep throat, I don't even know the last time. And I would use an herbal mixture of Mahonia, um, Echinacea, Myrrh, and Phytolacca. And I would just gargle that, and after just a couple of days, it was gone. And I'd use it with yeah, my see, friends, really my family, because, patients. Yeah, yeah, because you were allowing it to touch the infected area, and that's the whole point. That's golden seal, the, the berberine. Well, Mahonia is a berberine plant. So when it actually touches infected cells, that's what makes it very effective. It also has to touch the, the cells. So, yeah, that's a great combination. What about bacteria, like the bladder infections? What about for that one? What, what did you say? Sorry, I missed it. Uh, like bacterial bladder infections. Bladder infections? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so like UTI and stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of of uh, resistant bacteria that are affecting the urinary passages. There's an E. coli-131 now that's extremely difficult to treat, and probably about a third of the resistant bacteria, I think I talk about 21 different species in the book this time, and there's about 40 variants, um, about a third of them, uh, get into the urinary passages. And really the best thing for that, the thing that will clean up almost all of them or virtually all of them is uh, is a juniper berry Biden's combination. Now, juniper berry, the essential oil in juniper berry is active against all of the different resistant organisms. It's extremely effective, and the body excretes it out through the urinary passages, so the whole passage gets cleared out and exposed to it, 
But this other plant, which Americans haven't used very much, I think Michael Moore, the herbalist, talked about it first a few years ago, but Biden's Pelosa, and there's several other closely related species that can be used as well, Biden's Panada and some of the others. Um, but Biden's Pelosa has been used for a very long time in Asia and Africa, and the research on it is just super. It's a, it's a really strong systemic antibacterial, but it has to be made from the fresh plant. The dried plant's virtually useless. So the that plant has extremely strong affinities for healing mucous membrane systems that are infected. Um, and also it's got a it's a broad system antibacterial. So if you get a, a mixture of Biden's and juniper berry and take that, I I haven't had that fail on a UTI, whether it's resistant or not. It works really well. And where can people get this? Woodland Essence has most of that. Um, the they're as far as I know, they're they're carrying every one of the herbs that I mention in the book at this point. And there's several other people around the country. Biden's is probably the newest one. To be able to find the fresh plant is somewhat difficult. But it's uh, the thing about Biden's that's fascinating is it's an invasive botanical throughout the entire United States. So. Um, it's very tenacious, very aggressive, like resistant bacteria, and it's extremely effective. So almost it grows virtually every place. So. Okay. Um, and, and it's uh, just looking online, just for those listening, it's woodlandessence.com. You can see all of those on there. Right. Um, what about uh, bacterial vaginitis? Like just chronic bacterial infections in the vaginal area. Well, that one, that one, it just, it's sort of like I, I have in the book all of the different resistant bacteria, and then I talk about the different herbal combinations for it and how to use them. Now, that kind of thing, whether you're getting a, a candida infection uh, that's the source of that, or else if it's another kind of bacteria which is infecting the vaginal passages, basically the best way to deal with it is to use a systemic antibiotic um, combination plus then douching with those herbs um, that you make a really strong decoction or else you add um, some of the tincture to water and douche with it over a period of time. I've had a lot of good success with that. So if somebody knows the bacteria, you can like get more specific. But if not, usually... I recommend the very first place to start is uh, with usnea, which is an antibacterial lichen that's extremely strong, an uh, usnea and a berberine plant. And Biden's, again, because it's so good for mucous membrane systems. So if you get, you know, a third usnea, one-third Biden's, one-third golden seal, for instance, and you add it, you know, let's say about a half an ounce of that to enough water to douche with, Plus, take it um, as a uh, take the Bidens, and I'd recommend probably Bidens and Cryptolepis uh, combination uh, for the systemic. That'll almost always clear it up every time. It's real effective. Now, I know a lot of patients are starting to do, um, you know, the neti pots. They're really wanting to do that irrigation through their sinuses. Do you ever have them add right. uh, herbs into the into the formula? 
Yeah, I have done that. I really got into neti pot for a while. I, I'm really into provings and stuff, and I, I can't say that I really enjoyed neti potting. It's not one of the things where I go, "Hey, let's all neti pot. Let's all let's all drink beer and neti pot." You know, it's not exactly a party kind of thing. Because I mean, you're sitting there turning your head sideways and pouring this liquid to flush out all of your sinuses, and yeah, it's cool and it works. But it, I mean, it really feels weird. It's not exactly like you're normally going. Yeah, this feels so cool. I have this liquid running through all my sinuses and then down the back of my throat, you know. But nevertheless, <laughs> a number of people are really getting into it. And so the thing to do about that, you know, that first when I first did it, I, I, I used tinctures in the water, and then, you know, you could hear me scream about eight blocks away, you know, So because uh, those passages just don't appreciate alcohol, direct alcohol content. So the best thing to do is to make a strong decoction and use that, or if you want to use some of those herbs and you can only get them as tinctures, then then you add it to the water and just cook it for a while. And that will cook off the alcohol so that you can go ahead and do that. And it works really, really well because there's a number of resistant infections that get into the sinuses that are very difficult to treat. But the neti pot stuff does actually work. Well, I think the reason why it's so popular now is because it was on Oprah. So, you know, everybody's crazy. But I remember going to the store, the grocery store after that, and you could not get a nutty pot to save your life for like a week after that. They were all sold out. So everybody no, was at home always irritating their noses. Yeah, yeah, people always love it when Oprah mentions something like that. And then, you know, there's a big run on nutty pots. I would never have thought in America there'd be a run on nutty pots. But, you know, <laughs> you know. Could be worse things, I guess. Um, for those of you listening, we are, we are talking to Stephen Harold Buner. He is the author of Herbal Antibiotics. And the phone lines are open, so if you'd like to call and ask a question, feel free to do so, 818-495-6919. And I have a couple of questions for, um, for you from Facebook. So this one is from Lisa, and she said, I use emulsified oil of oregano. Specifically, she uses ADP from Biotics Research um, when I start feeling sick, which is extremely rare these days. How much is too much, and can you overdo it? And then what is the mechanism? So how does it work? Why does it work? And she says, great show. Keep up the that's great Actually, work. that's not something that I've worked with that much. I mean, oregano okay. is does have an extremely broad range of antibacterial activity, and but it's not one of the ones, you know, different herbalists, naturopaths, and people that work with plant medicines, they sort of find the herbs that, end up in their orbit or they end up in the orbit of the plants. And that's just not one that I've I've used enough to even comment on it about that. So I'm sorry about that. That's okay. All right, next up is from Chris. He says, I have constant low-grade infections, so constant sore throats, glands, et cetera, but quite intolerant to salicylates. And he said these are high in nearly all herbs. Any idea how to get around this? Well, probably the given what he's talking about, the one thing that I would really look at using is red root, which is a ceanothus species, because if his, when he talks about glands, usually most people mean their lymph system, their lymph nodes by that. And most people don't realize that the spleen is a major part of the lymph system, as is the appendix, and the tonsils and the adenoids in the throat, for instance, are all part of this whole lymph immune complex that's really important. And the thing is that the the spleen and the lymph create a lot of the immune responses to infection. So if he's got a low-grade infection that won't go away, 
his immune system is not being able to overcome it. So the best way to approach it is to, to look at adaptogens and a lot of red root to clear the lymph system and maybe a systemic antibacterial. In terms of salicylates, I, I haven't noticed, you know, that, that they, I haven't found them to be that high in a lot of the herbs that I work with, but I just wouldn't know. Like Biden's, it's, it's particularly high. It's somewhat high in uh, horsetail and things like that, but I, I wouldn't, you know, I, it's just not a kind of a thing that, I mean, his sensitivity would have to be really extreme, I think, for it to be bothered by red root or, or let's say, the adaptogens like rhodiola and cordyceps, for instance. Anyway, that's sort of my off-the-cuff response on that one. Okay. Awesome. Very good. All right, so let's take it to a couple others here. So what are some other favorite herbal antibiotics? I know that I, I could totally go off topic and just rattle off all these conditions for you, but really like, you know, obviously the topic of the show is herbal antibiotics for drug-resistant bacteria. You mentioned a few of them. Do you have any other ones that you're particularly fond of? Well, the one that I haven't mentioned so far is honey. And when I first wrote about honey, because this is actually the second edition of herbal antibiotics, and the first edition was a rather kind of um, – a preliminary look at it. it was a fairly small book of about 130 pages and this is running 500 and something with everything and so it's a lot more detailed but in that first book I talked quite a bit about honey and what's interesting is since that time a number of countries around the world have added honey to standard practice medicine in hospitals for surgical wounds now a lot of the times when somebody's in the hospital even though the hospitals look clean most of the surfaces have resistant bacteria on them, even though you can't see them and even though they've been cleaning the, the walls and the floors and everything fairly stringently. So what happens is that they have a surgical wound and it becomes infected with resistant bacteria. In England, they've started to use just putting honey on those particular wounds and honey literally is active against everything that they've tested it against, every resistant bacteria that there is. And it's an absolutely phenomenal substance. I found out about it because uh, people in Mexico in rural practice used it for healing really deep ulcers, you know, to the bone. And for burns, like when people have severe burns, staph infections are a real problem and also keeping the wound moist. Well, if you just cover it with honey, it keeps the wound moist, it protects it from any bacteria, plus it kills any bacteria that gets in there, and it stimulates wound regeneration. So I once accidentally shot a 16-penny nail from a nail gun through the first joint on my left pointer finger. So I poured antibacterial herbs over it, pulled the nail out, and just covered it with honey and it healed fine with no problem at all. So I've seen it work for a lot of people with resistant wounds. It's one of the best things to have around if you've got an infected wound. So it's just super. Usni um, is another one. It's more of a limited. I, I have the book separated into systemic antibacterials and then localized, which are ones that are, you know, they stay either in the GI tract or else they're limited to the surface of the skin. And, Usni is extremely good. The berberine plants like golden seal, mahonia, um, barberry, the barberries, a number of them are extremely good for salmonella, shigella, any kind of enteric resistant infection that you get. They'll take care of it pretty 
cleanly and pretty fast. That E. coli that's very bad in the gut, with, they have bloody diarrhea and stuff, it's really excellent for that. So, hmm. um, Any particular type of honey to use? Well, the honey, the best kind of honey to use is wildflower honey that you get from either a health food store, a co-op, or the farmer's market. A really good honey should look slightly cloudy to the eye because it should have some pollen in it. And one of the major problems with large store-bought honeys is they'll be extremely clear to the eye. And somebody just did some testing on that, and it turns out that some of them have corn syrup added or various things like that. They couldn't actually identify that they were really honey. So, yeah, and, and if, you get a, if you get a wildflower honey, you're getting mixtures of all of these bioactive plants. It's actually a bioactive complex from many different plants. So the range of activity is a lot broader and a lot more specific. So that's really the best kind to get. What about Manuka honey? Is that anything special? Yeah, Manuka, a lot of people like that. Um, that's one of the ones that's been tested most extensively in England for um, surgical wounds. And as the pharmaceutical companies got involved in it, they sort of developed a special honey called Meta Honey, which is ten times as expensive as the stuff you'll buy at the store. And that's the only thing that's allowed to be used. But the Mahuka honey is is actually pretty strong, and, and the results in the, the journal studies on it is extremely good. Hmm. Okay. A couple more questions from Facebook. This is from Carolyn. She wants to know, any suggestions for a care kit for college students heading off to um, first-time dorm living. She said, we've maintained a clean, gluten-free, Western Price-style diet at home. My son may have issues with the dining hall and also the usual dorm dormitory germs. Yeah, the thing is that, okay, I look at having a kit like that in two forms, antivirals and antibacterials. So there's actually a companion to this book called Herbal Antivirals. It will be coming out next summer which deals with that. So the best antivirals to use are Lomatium, um, Isatis, and Chinese skullcap root. Those three in a blend will knock out pretty much everything, including West Nile encephalitis and uh, most influenzas. It's extremely effective. And then in terms of the antibacterial stuff, what you want is stuff for food poisoning kinds of things, our enteric infections, which you need a good berberine plant like golden seal or berberus, and some good systemic antibacterials for if he gets anything else going on, which would be my, my fallback is always cryptolepis. It's the one I've used the most. So that's sort of where I'd go with it all. Cool. And then what about, like, if there's any cuts or scrapes that, that, you know, a kid might get? Any topicals that you really love? Okay, cuts or scrapes, there's two approaches I have. One is the honey because it, it's just fantastic and it works great. And But the other way I go is that to get powdered herbs, and actually many companies sell the herbs in powdered form now, which is nice. So if you get a powdered golden seal, for instance, I usually make a mixture of golden seal and a, a, uh, an astringent, really strongly astringent root plant like uh, uh, blackberry root or raspberry leaf or something like that, and I use usnea, and those three things I put together and then 
powder them as much as possible, and then you just pack the wound with it. It, it helps it heal extremely fast. You know, you, I usually put that on first. It stops the bleeding, keeps the wound from seeping, stops the bacterial infection, and then I use honey after that, and it works really, really well. Love it. Okay, and this, this question is from Carmen. She wants to know, do herbal antibiotics cause yeast overgrowth like prescription antibiotics do? I've never seen it. I've never seen that happen. Wow. So it's just it's it's just I've just never seen it. They don't seem to there and some of the studies of the antibacterial plants uh, oddly enough some of the chemical substances in the plant seem to have no other function except to reduce side effects from the antibacterial substances in the plant. Now, this plays havoc with reductionistic mechanical freaks about, you know, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But you have to think about it. When a plant gets a bacterial infection, it begins releasing antibacterial substances into its system to deal with it. And actually, even though it seems odd to most people in America, plant physiology and our physiology really isn't that different. And they need to be able to not have the side effects from those bacterial substances that they would normally have. So they've actually created substances that will protect their own cellular integrity from the antibacterial substances, and they work just as well for us. Hmm. Awesome. Um, do you have any favorite herbs to put in a nebulizer or vaporizer? I tend to like... Um, <laughs> I tend to use eucalyptus. A lot of people do that. I particularly like that one. I like juniper berry oil. If I'm doing inhalants, which is I've got a really serious lung infection, or if I'm using aromatic plants to breathe in those uh, the volatiles, I tend to go with eucalyptus and um, and juniper. Any of the evergreens, they're extremely useful antibacterials to take that way. So those are pretty much where I go with it. Cool. And then in our clinic, we use essential oils to clean the clinic. Do you have any particular oils or herbs that you like to use for cleaning? Um, actually, I live in southern New Mexico. We, I don't think we believe in cleaning here. <laughs> we just we we live in the kind of the wild desert area, but I've used juniper a lot for cleaning. Like if I'm making beer, I can use juniper as a cleaning substance, um, which is traditional in Norway for um, protect, protecting the wart from infection. But uh, pretty much the major essential oils I use um, personally as medicine, I use. Peppermint essential oil for GI tract disturbances, it's extremely good. And then the other one I use is birch essential oil for um, lateral epicondylitis, which is known as tennis elbow. It's, it's, it's fairly difficult to treat, but that does give a lot of good symptomatic relief if it's applied topically. One um, topic that's kind of been, been throwing around lately is um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. A lot of people are really uh -huh. learning about it, and um, there's, you know, a lot of doctors use antibiotics, like triple antibiotics for it. Have you seen any treatments to be effective for that herbally? Yeah, the thing that I've used for that the most is um, I usually recommend that people do 
a fast for a while to relieve stress on the whole GI tract system. And I'm actually really the easiest one. I use a lot of different forms of that. But the one that I'm most in favor of is the Master Cleanser, which is everybody seems to know about, but it's extremely effective. And it just reduces stress on the GI tract. And then after about 10 days, what I start doing is that I use um, three plants. Primarily, I use um, fresh cabbage, and I use... um, celery and I use uh, plantain. I usually add some carrots and beets in there to kind of help the mix, but those, especially the cabbage and the plantain, I've seen really remarkable things with the fresh juice of those plants in terms of healing the integrity of the GI tract membrane when it's disrupted like that. And of course, the other plant that's really specific for that is Biden's Pelosa, and I haven't used Biden's as much as I want, but in terms of of healing uh, mucous membrane integrity, it's extremely good every time I have used it, so I'd probably now start with that. Do you think that's better? But really for, the, so you're talking about leaky, leaky gut, right, using those particular herbs and the juices for, for yeah. leaky gut? Yeah, for, okay. yeah, for leaky gut, for um, irritable bowel syndrome, for all of that, any kind of inflammation, Weakness in the cellular junctions in the GI tract membrane. The plantain is in the the cabbage. They're just absolutely in phenomenal. I mean, just what the outcome. I usually use a piece of cabbage about the size of a large carrot, and about four or five plantain, fresh plantain leaves. It's uh, the outcome's extremely good. Hmm. Okay. And then do you find that those are more effective than slip, slippery elm, for example, or aloe, or any of those other ones? Well, slippery elm is, the thing is, slippery elm and, see, one of the things that I'll do, too, if if people want to get into it a little slower, is I'll recommend oatmeal, for instance, for a very long time, which is sort of a slippery elm approach. Those things are extremely good for soothing inflammation and irritation in the bowel wall, and they're absolutely great for that, and so is um, malted barley extract without hops in it. Um, is extremely good for that. It's almost as good as, as the cabbage. But those soothe it, I think, and are really good that way. And then the healing stuff, I found that the cabbage and the plantain actually begin to heal the cellular wall, that the healing just seems to go deeper for me with that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, you listeners, this is the last call for callers. If you'd like to ask a question, the number is 818-495-6919. It's 818-495-6919. Um, now, I know, for, you know, for being a naturopathic doctor, we're always wanting to get to the root cause of issues, you know, and always wanting to see what is really happening happening beyond symptoms, you know, and also to preventing and treating things more in a prevention standpoint. We want to keep patients healthy before they get sick. Um, so, from from a prevention standpoint, are there any kind of herbs that you would recommend just on a sort of a daily basis to stay healthy or just to kind of let the body do its job on its own? Well, the the basic thing I've found is that a cleansing fast, like the Master Cleanser, once a year in the spring does a huge amount to fix a lot of problems. I mean, just tons of problems are helped by that. And that's in a lot of ways, that's pretty standard naturopathic approach anyway and has been for a very long time. 
but I've found that I can pretty much eat whatever I want most of the year if I'll do that once or twice a year, and it just allows my body to reset itself. And I've seen really good outcomes from everybody who's been willing to do it. That thing, and then, of course, I'm 60, so the kind of herbal regimen I use daily is different than what somebody's going to use that's 30. I tend to use things that lower inflammation in the central nervous system, especially in the brain, and that deal with um, reactive oxygen species in the brain because of memory problems and just the general kind of inflammatory dynamics that go on in the aged body and the aged brain. So I take um, rhodiola and Chinese skullcap every day. They're, They're kind of my two favorites and then I'm out of cordyceps right now but normally I would be taking cordyceps as well which is absolutely phenomenal along the same line and then the fourth one I take is an herb called lion's mane which is extremely good for stimulating neural regrowth in the brain and I found that those for me that's sort of my standard stay healthy kind of thing because they work sort of as an adaptogenic overall as an adaptogen and anti-inflammatory for the central nervous system in the body, and they really help the neural structures in the brain. So, I mean, if if somebody was 30, I'd probably look at something different. But for anybody that's mm-hmm. middle-aged or older, that's extremely good. Well, I'm 31, so what about I, me? Uh, and the other thing that I take, too, is pine pollen extract all the time, which is extremely good for helping androgen um, levels. Um, 31? Still, my favorite ones are, in just just general adaptogens, probably I'd go astragalus, eleuthero, and rhodiola for somebody you're in your age group. They're very nice herbs. I'm typing as you're talking. I'm taking notes. (laughs) Yeah, I use a lot of those. They're very nice herbs. Yeah, a lot of what I recommend for patients I tend to not do for myself because I'm so, you know, busy taking care of people. So I need to, you know, take care of myself a little bit. I know, that's always the problem. That's always the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and I forgot, I have one question from um, a friend. She wanted to know um, about biofilms. So, you know, getting recurrent infections and and could biofilms be to blame? And are there herbs that can deal with um, treating biofilms? There are a number of herbs that will help biofilms. I mean, um, honey works for it. And I actually, I've been working on three different highly technical books right now. And to tell you the truth, the biofilm answer, it's in my brain, but I can't find it right now. There's actually <laughs> three or four herbs that, there are three or four herbs that I was, because I have a, uh, a book on treating Lyme co-infections that's coming out next spring, and I talk about biofilm in there, and I've got some listing for that. But I just, I'm sorry, I just can't remember. It's the, okay. I'll have you back on the show to talk all about it, so it's all good. That would be great. So I think our time is, you know, kind of coming to a close, but any other last-minute tidbits you'd like to leave with us? I think that one of the things I like to tell people is that, you know, if they're willing to just really think about this stuff and take charge of their own health, one of the major things that happens is their general fear level begins to go way down. I mean, there's nothing... That can create that can increase self awareness and empowerment more than a good chronic illness of one sort or another, and that's one of the things Lyme disease has taught me and working with people with it. So having this information, it's astonishing how 
good you feel in yourself about your ability to take care of yourself because you don't have to depend on these other people and these other systems the way that we've been trained to. And it just makes a real difference. And given the the rise of antibiotic resistance, we all need to know how to do that. So I have a great deal of faith in the individual's ability to do that for themselves. Well, I think your book is a complete gem, and I love having it in my arsenal here, and I would love for having every listener to, to pick it up. So where can our listeners um, purchase your book? Well, Amazon's got it. Most bookstores should. The publisher's being pretty good about getting it out there, but because almost everybody's on the Internet now, then the easiest way is just to get on Amazon and look it up, and they've got a pretty good price on it as well. Awesome. So the book is Herbal Antibiotics, Natural Alternatives for Treating Drug-Resistant Bacteria, and it's by Stephen Harold Right, the second, the second edition. Second edition. Thank you. Yeah, because there's <laughs> and a I love the cover, too. It's there. really nice. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and I hope to meet you someday. Great. Thanks for having me on. It was great. You bet. Take Have a great night and take care. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, guys. That's the show. Thank you for tuning in. And I forgot to mention, next week we're going to be having our guest. We were going to have a couple weeks ago. That's Tamara Renee. We're going to be talking all about how to reveal and unlock your inner goddess. So all you ladies, make sure to tune in. It's going to be a great show. That will be next Tuesday, same time. Check me out, Dr. Low Radio. My website is drlaurennoel.com. I'm at Bloom Natural Health. And if you're local, check out the event tomorrow at Daily Method. It's all on the Paleo Diet Look at our Facebook page for more information. That's facebook.com slash bloomnaturalhealth. Have a fabulous week, and we will see you next week. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. This is your wallet. I've got my hands full with your credit cards, ID, and that Froyo loyalty card. So I was thrilled to learn about the new digital wallet in the Giant Eagle app. It'll let you store, manage, and spend all your gift cards right from your phone. E-gift cards you buy from Giant Eagle and GetGo will load automatically. And you can even transfer plastic gift cards there, too. Download the Giant Eagle app and start using the digital wallet today. Visit GiantEagle.com backslash wallet for details.